following along. I'll be reading from uh, Psalm 26 here shortly. So Psalm 26 opens with David asking God to vindicate him. It appears that David has been falsely accused. So he calls upon God to make this right. We will spend some time developing our response to false accusations. Instead of just wanting that the wrong made right, David goes a step farther. And he asks God to give him a thorough exam, to test his mind and his heart for any corruption. To pray like this is to be like a student who asks the teacher for a pop quiz. To be tested or examined is to submit oneself to God's judgment. As God finds disorder and rubbish, garbage, he will set things in order. We remember that when God sets things in order, it's like his first creative act. And there is where we find beauty. God sets David's heart and mind in order by purging any hint of wickedness. With his mind and heart rightly ordered, David is now able to set the rest of his life in order. He avoids fellowship with wicked men and desires to be in God's presence. Often, we think very highly of ourselves. We think we can surround ourselves with wicked men, whether that be their conversation, their music, their theatrical productions, and then avoid their contaminating yeast. Knowing that wicked company corrupts good morals, David flees from the comfortable setting, comfortable and inviting setting of wicked men, and flees to our Savior. Before reading this word, Psalm 26, <laughs> let's pray that God would illumine our hearts and minds. O Lord, we are told that David was a man after your own heart. Before us, we have a record of his prayer, prayers here in these Psalms. Lord, we do not pray and we do not think like this. Teach us to follow David and to think and pray like he does. You are our Father. Make us to be faithful sons. Help us now that we would be changed into sons of glory. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So before reading this psalm, maybe a few other words. Let me put one challenging situation before you. Or let me put one challenging situation that may have been the inspiration for this psalm. We read, or we saw how, we know how King, Dave, King Saul died in battle. And before that time, Samuel had told David, before his own death, that David would be king. So with Saul's passing, many of the tribes are still loyal to Saul's family. And they think a son of his should be king. That son is Ishboheth. The commander of Ishboheth's army is Abner. And now Abner desires to make a covenant with David and unite the kingdom under David's rule. So, Dave, so Abner sends a request to David to have an audience with him. David invites him into the house. They establish the terms of the covenant. And then to seal the deal, Abner and David eat, signifying all is well. After the covenant is cut, the crafty commander of David's army, Joab, 
plays a dirty and treacherous trick. And he chases down Abner and murders him. David's intentions were honest, straightforward. Joe, Joab was devious. Because of this connection between Joab and David, one can only imagine there were accusations that David was a double-crossing liar, seeking to establish his own power and more conniving than the Clintons. With this story as a backdrop, now hear Psalm 26. Start with verses 1 through 5. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. For your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of the evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. So imagine, with false accusations flying around, David calls on God to vindicate him. As we read this psalm, we may think that David, we may initially think that David is trying to justify himself, as though he could prove that he deserves salvation by his good works. Yet remember the psalm before this, Psalm 25, where David sought forgiveness from God and pleaded with God not to remember the sins of his youth. David's not perfect, but neither is he guilty of the false charges like Abner's murder. As he is falsely accused and put under pressure, the true character of David shines forth. Instead of going into a rant for saying, it's unfair, he calls upon God and is willing to wait upon him. In verse 2, David says that he trusts in God and will continue to do so. This is faith and practice, to wait upon God. Look back over David's life and consider the times he waited upon God instead of taking matters into his own hands. Though David was told he would be king, yet he had to wait upon God's timing. David had multiple opportunities to take Saul's life, but he knew that it was wrong to kill God's anointed, so he waited. God told Abraham, he would have a son, but he had to wait 25 years. Satan is always trying to get us to take shortcuts, to assume responsibilities and privileges that are not ours, but we have to wait. If you are not married, wait for sexual relations. If you have an enemy who is reviling you, do not revile back, but wait upon the God of vengeance. David calls upon God to make things right. And then he expands his prayer in a really scary direction. God, make this right. And then he asks God, examine me, prove me, try my heart, try my mind, see if there's anything wrong with me. This is like the kid in school who asked the teacher for a pop quiz. And remember what we did to that kid. We didn't like him, right, because we all had to take the pop quiz. Who does this? Who asked for a pop quiz? David knows that he did not use his lips to deceive Abner, nor were his hands involved with the murder. So he goes a step farther. 
David says, check my mind, check my heart. They are also innocent. He's not engaged in any scheming or conniving. Though your hands may be innocent of murder, have you hated your brother in your heart? Have you wanted him dead? You may have not used your mouth to destroy another, so rob them of a good reputation. But as your mind concocted a list of things you want the world to know about a certain person that you dislike. If you let that wickedness reside in your heart and in your mind, it's only a matter of time till it spills out through your hands, through your tongue. So let us boldly pray as David prays that God would test our heart and our mind and surface the, surface the poison that's within. Let's pray God would give us a pop quiz. During the pop quiz, there we may be shown wickedness, which must be cleansed. Once our heart is cleansed of hatred, it must be filled with something else. Jesus warned the people of the day that when their house is cleansed of a demon and put in order, it must be filled with something else. Lest seven demons more wicked than the first return and take over. So as we repent of hatred in our hearts, we must look upon God's loving kindness, knowing that he is at work. Instead of glorying in tasty trifles about others and filling our minds with all the wrongs others have done, we have to walk in God's truth. And so walk with God. This is a battle. We are to take all thoughts captive for Christ knowing that there are ones that are wicked. Then when we turn and think God's own thoughts after him, this is what he would call us to do. This is a practice. This is a discipline. We will fill our hearts and minds with that which is honorable, noble, and good. And this then will have outward implications. So back to verses 4 and 5. David testifies that he does not go to the assembly of the hypocrites or evildoers. He knows that he would only find wickedness coming from there. He hates their assembly. And though it may be comfortable, if you notice the position, he, he says, I don't sit with them. So hypocrites are constantly calling us to join their assembly, to watch their movie, to listen to their music, to throw our hat in the ring with them. It is reassuring to be a part of the crowd. They're cool, by the way. And they're inviting us. Though it may be initially comfortable to sit with the crowd, determine their foundation. And then you can estimate their trajectory. Nothing is neutral. You are either for Christ or you're against him. If what they are doing is good, honorable, and praiseworthy, then partake. And may God be glorified. If they are not for God, then they are idolaters hypocrites, and evil, and wicked ways will come sooner or later. God hates their assembly, and so should we. It is not enough to hate their company. We must love and find ourselves in the presence of the righteous God. Now hear verses 6 through 8. I wash my hands in innocence. I go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with voice, with the voice of thanksgiving, and to tell of all your wondrous works. Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. 
So David busies his hands with good works. And there he finds himself in the presence of God. Instead of focusing his mind and heart on wickedness, David uses his voice for telling of God's wonderful works. Instead of bowing to those wielding the power in the world, David bows before God's altar, before God. Do not worry yourself, nor be enamored with the latest fashions or the desire of popularity. Rejoice and glory in the work God is performing. Study his works in scripture and understand his mode of operation. Look outside at the changing colors of the leaves of the fall and know he's at work. Take notice that he at times raises up powerful men and like Pharaoh, brings them down. Tell others of his works and know that he is telling a wonderful story. But these stories have drama. They have suspense. So learn to wait. And rejoice while you wait when things don't go as they were planned. Love to be on God's team instead of finding yourself fitting into the world. Though slandered, remember how this psalm started. David was slandered. He was slandered and accused of those in the world. Understand that their critique is fleeting, quickly passing, and you are on a different trajectory. The stuff of this world and the praise of this world is temporary. And it's what tries to make us into slaves. And before you know it, though, we're gone. We're like that flower. We're gone. The work of God is life-giving. It's enduring. It's beautiful. Make it your highest goal to be in your Father's presence, to hear his word, to live in such a way that one day he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, to double down on this sentiment, here verses 9 through 10. David prays, Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands is a sinister scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. Take note, our time in this world is short. We are like flowers that soon fade and die. And David prays that he will not be gathered with the sinners of this world, who are tares, which is another word for weeds, that will be tossed into the eternal fire. These sinners are bloodthirsty seeking to shed the blood of others that will be tossed into eternal fire. Jesus and his followers, on the other hand, right, shed their own blood that others might live. Those living apart from Christ want, want the blood of others, right? Somebody is preventing their happiness, preventing their utopia on earth. We talked about this before. The communists wanted the blood of landowners. Hitler wanted the blood of Jews. Modern-day secularists, they want someone else's blood. They want to shed the blood of babies who are conceived, by their estimation, at an inconvenient time and remind them that actions have consequences. To bring forth their utopia, these sinners do whatever it takes, developing schemes and relying on bribes. Sometimes their bribes are not purely financial. Sometimes their bribes are flattering comments, promises 
to give you, to bequeath to you the status of coolness, as long as you go along with them. If these approaches do not work, they'll resort to violence or the threat thereof. If you speak out concerning their plans, they will call you a racist or try to shame you as a Christian nationalist. You don't fall for their schemes, their enticements, nor succumb to their threats, lest you find yourself on their team, spending eternity with them. We cannot walk with them here on earth and then to walk, expect to walk with God in heaven. Take note of your actions and then make a vow like David makes a vow. Hear it in verses 11 and 12. But as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be merciful to me. My foot stands in an even place. In the congregation, I will bless the Lord. Instead of sitting comfortably with the wicked, David vows to walk with the Lord. There, there is work to be done. We're not to be sitting, we're to be walking because we are to storm the gates of hell. We are to advance the kingdom. This does not happen when we find ourselves sitting and comfortable. Instead of being complacent, which I'm associating with sitting, David prays his life would be redeemed, bought, purchased, and then given to action to show forth the value. The work of God is hard, difficult, but eternally fulfilling. Are you ready to work so that your master will find you busy when he returns? He calls, the work he calls us to is to stand with other saints and fight. Remember what happened? God redeemed or rescued the Israelites from Egypt. He took these former slaves and look what he did. He made them an army. As an army, all soldiers are given a purpose. Look around at your brothers and sisters in Christ who are part of their army. What can you do to help them? You all have been given certain gifts. Therefore, use your gifts to bless and build up others. One thing we can all do is sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so encourage our brethren. As you look around this world, you will find many powerful people who are bloodthirsty liars. Take note, they may look 10 feet tall and bulletproof. But before you know it, they will slip, they will fall, and they will have a tremendous crash. Step away from their company. Step away from their company lest you get part of the crash. You, on the other hand, walk with God. Walk with your brethren. Know that your feet are stand in an even place. In this even and secure place, you will not be cool. You will not find yourself in the majority. But you're standing with God, and you are standing in the right place. Though the world be filled with all manner of storm, if you stand with God, you stand secure. Even while you are mocked and slandered. I want to spend the rest of the time developing the application from this psalm with regard to godly men who are slandered. Remember what Satan's number one thing is. He's an accuser. He's a slanderer. So let's have a look in our own time and age. Over these past years, we have learned that the world is full of bloodthirsty men, even if they wear nice suits and live in a pleasant neighborhood. 
even if they've been Boy Scouts, right? They might be FBI agents, they might work at MSNBC, or they might serve as the principal down at the high school. If they are 100% committed to a cause, to do what's right in their own eyes, not to please God, they are wicked. They are busy building the city of man, which is their version of heaven on earth. They will do whatever is necessary to complete their tasks, remembering they think the ends justify the means. They will threaten, bully, embarrass, and do whatever stands, do whatever it takes for to get rid of those who stand in their way. They're putting forth their utopia and their version of truth. Their purported version of truth is always rebellion. Always rebellion. They tell children to rebel against their parents. They tell women to break free from the historic family where fathers rule. In their ongoing rebellion, they attempt to be their own god, thinking they can decide their own sex with hormone blockers, hormone blockers and mutilating surgeries. They rise to power in government, and they use the force of government to drive their agenda. All manner of institutions are bribed with government monies to go along with the program. Case in point, colleges and universities. And they are required to teach all manner of foolishness. When and if the bribing does not work, there are businesses and individuals that are threatened with arrest and all manner of lawsuit. If anyone speaks out against their programs, they will be called names. You know them. Racists! homophobe, white nationalists, whatever it takes to destroy them. Yet there are men who do stand up to the tyranny. And then the bloodthirsty men double down on them with a new wave of flurry to fury to destroy them and to silence their voice. Instead of speaking in purely hypothetical terms, let me propose two modern examples, namely John MacArthur Douglas Wilson. Both spoke loudly during the COVID shutdown when the government said churches were non-essential, but liquor stores and pot shops were essential. These men have stood up and invited all manner of character assassination upon themselves. There are bloodthirsty men dredging up all kinds of half-truths, retelling all kinds of stories, attempting to marginalize Wilson and MacArthur. We should not be surprised. Remember, the psalm opens with David being falsely accused, and then David calling upon God to vindicate him. As he was being slandered by what? The popular press at the time, the popular opinion of the time. So when brave men stand up and when they take the lead and charge, take charge to advance God's kingdom, what's your response? Where do you find yourself? In watching these past uh, uh, couple years, I find three responses to those who stand up and take charge. And I'm speaking now of those in the church. First, I believe the church has been void of brave men for so long that when someone stands up and takes this action, we don't know what to do. There are those who would rather retreat and avoid harm than standing with those who speak out. From their experience, the men in the church have been soft for so long, they can understand what it looks like when godly masculinity is displayed. 
In their minds, something must be wrong with these men. They do not question their own mindset, but assume these brave men are out of line. They're over the top. They're toxic. By this crowd, by this crowd of Christians, these brave and godly men are written off. And guess what happens? More territory is conceded to the wicked. There's a second group, I believe. There's a second group that responds when, when brave men are slandered, and these I call fence straddlers. Instead of trashing these brave men completely, they strive for what they assume to be the high ground, and they try to take a place of neutrality. They attest to the clamoring world that they have their differences with Wilson and MacArthur. They attest to those in the church, something must be done, though. But they wonder if men like Wilson and MacArthur are really taking the best approach. Likely they would prefer that Wilson and MacArthur to be more nuanced, more winsome. These are likely code words. They wish they were softer. Instead of taking this approach, they marginalize their actions of these brave men. And they get themselves, they think they get themselves off the front lines. In the psalm, Davis remi Dave, David reminds us that we are to hate the assembly of the wicked men and the evil, evil people and not to find ourselves sitting with them. These fence straddlers are trying to be soft and moderate. They are trying to win the appeal of the evil. So there's a third approach. Join their ranks. Follow their lead and do not apologize. God's word draws sharp lines, and so it should be. Homosexuality is not two people loving each other. God's word tells us it's an abomination to God, and it, so should, and it should be to us. Sex outside of marriage is not okay. It's called fornication. It's a sin. It will destroy people and cast them into hell, lest they repent. When a husband rules his family and his wife submits, this is a form of marriage that is not some holdover from barbaric times. Instead, it's something following God's word and a wonderful manifestation, picture of Jesus loving his church. And this is what we're called to live out and proclaim to the world, though they falsely accuse us. Stand on God's truth. Stand on his word. Do not be sympathetic. Don't fall for their, don't find yourself apologizing for God's teaching or his clear word. He does not need you to defend him. Instead, he calls you to bow the knee to him, not to these bloodthirsty men. If you say abortion is wrong, always wrong, as we should, they will try to portray you as a monster against the freedom of women. To get you on the defensive, they will ask you, what would you do about some teenage girl who gets raped and is now, is now pregnant? Would you have her carry the baby full term? Stand on God's word. Stand on his truth. Tell them one horrific crime has been committed namely the rape of this girl, and it deserves the death penalty for the perpetrator. And then tell them you have no desire 
to commit a second horrific crime, namely the murder of the little one in that womb. When godly men stand up, they will be accused. They, and we are to follow the admonition of God's word. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder or leader in the church, lest it is brought by two or three independent and credible witnesses, and then in a court of the church, not in the court of popular opinion. Remember that cowards will not inherit the kingdom of God. So stand tall. Stand tall with faithful men. Men, the battle is before us. We're called to rise from our comfortable seats and stand, to proclaim God's truth, to be salt and light in this world that is hell-bent on their own, their own destruction. Like Jesus, we should prepare ourselves to sacrifice our name, our reputation, and be destroyed in the court of popular opinion. God will protect he will vindicate. Wives, encourage your husbands. When he demonstrates these mas masculine characteristics, encourage them so that they will fight on. Fathers and mothers, raise your children for the fight. When they get hurt, emotionally, physically, forget the bubble wrap. Instead, encourage them to brush it off, get up, and keep going, especially your young men. Wean them on the various battles found in God's word. Let them meet people like Ezra and Nehemiah who were falsely accused but carried on, stood their ground. Teach them about that honorable woman, J.L. Remember her? She soothed Caesarea, who was the commander of the enemy's army. She soothed him to sleep. And then remember what she did? She drove a tent peg through his head. She was a fighter, wasn't she? The church over the past few decades has been sugar and spice and all things nice. It's not working well. Nor is it biblical. We have lost our prophetic voice. May we recover it as we call people to repent. Parents, raise your children to be bright lights, to expose wickedness, to be salt and light. Finally, follow David's example. What's he doing? Though he was reviled and falsely accused, what did he do? He rejoiced. He gave thanks to God for his goodness. Surround yourself with saints. Rejoice, even while the people of this world are fomenting like rabid dogs because of your last post. When you are falsely accused by those who call themselves Christians, rejoice. You've joined the company of the prophets who were falsely accused. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are weak. Make us strong. We are fearful. We pray that you would make us courageous. We find ourselves anxious about the events of this world. Show us our place in the battle lines. As our generation rushes headlong into the paths of wickedness and self-destruction, may we be prepared to sacrifice ourselves and give them the words of life and truth. Lord, we pray, glorify yourself. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.